This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm JP Tasker, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for Tuesday, November 14th. On the pod today, Palestinians seeking shelter and treatment in Gaza's Al Shifa hospital begin to dig a mass grave. We'll speak to the World Health Organization about the status of Gaza's largest hospital and bring you the latest from our reporter on the ground. Plus, the power panel is standing by to weigh in on who is winning the political battles around housing and affordability. The CBC's Briar Stewart is in Jerusalem. Briar, what's the latest on the situation in Gaza's hospitals? Well, it is an increasingly dire situation, and the Al Shifa Hospital, which is Gaza's largest medical facility, is basically uh, surrounded by Israeli forces as they fight uh, Hamas. And we've been trying to reach doctors and the director of the hospital uh, inside. We've talked to them on a few occasions, but it's very difficult uh, to communicate. When we do manage to reach them, we're on the phone for maybe 30 seconds or a minute before the line cuts out. But what we know is that there are hundreds of patients inside the hospital, and more than 30 premature babies who were taken out of incubators because the generator that was running them shut down because there was no fuel. Outside of the hospital, it's also a desperate situation. They say that there are bodies piling up. These are people who died uh, in the fighting, but it's not safe enough to retrieve them, to take them to the morgue, or to take them somewhere else to be buried. So you have the doctors inside the hospital preparing to to bury them on their own. Now, Israel says it's not targeting hospitals, but that Hamas is using these hospitals to basically shelter themselves. And they uh, released a video yesterday, which they claimed showed a a Hamas command center underneath a different hospital. And uh, the U.S. uh, officials have also said that they have their own intelligence that indicates that Hamas is operating in al-Shifa. But it is a very desperate situation. Uh, We've seen just you know, thousands of people who have died within the last uh, five to six weeks. And there are, are growing calls for there to be a ceasefire, including from the U.N. The Secretary General is deeply disturbed by the horrible situation and the dramatic loss of life in several hospitals in Gaza. In the name of humanity, the Secretary General calls for an immediate ceasefire. Now, we were talking about the hospitals, but really the situation throughout all of Gaza is desperate because you have several hundred thousand people who have left their homes. Many of them are sheltering in tents. And we know that there's not enough aid coming in and there's no fuel coming in. And the U.N. agency uh, that operates in Gaza says that they're now halting the relief operations because they've run out of fuel. And they use the fuel to, to power their trucks. They were delivering aid around Gaza. They say they'll no longer be able to do that. They also say they won't be able to run the pumps anymore, uh, which are pumping groundwater so people have something to drink. And what about the hostages in Gaza and the state of those negotiations? What can you tell us about that? Well, there have been a lot of reports about a, a potential deal and a lot of speculation. So you had the Prime Minister of Israel come out today saying that his heart is with the hostages and their families, and they'll report something when they have something concrete to report. But certainly the government is facing a lot of pressure uh, from families and from the population to 
to reach some kind of deal uh, to secure the release of the 239 hostages in Gaza. Now, Hamas has said that it's willing to free 70 of them in exchange for a five-day truce, but Israel has not been keen at all to talk about any kind of ceasefire. And there are families right now that are marching from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. They'll be arriving here on the weekend, and they're going to be stationing, stationing themselves outside of the Prime Minister's house to really try to put pressure on him. Now, while we're talking about the hostages, there is one name that I, I want to mention, and that's um, Canadian uh, Vivian Silver. Originally from Winnipeg, she uh, moved to Israel in the 1970s, and she was a well-known peace activist. Now, her family has recently found out that she was killed uh, on October 7th when Hamas stormed Israel. They had only recently found out because it took a long time for Israeli authorities to identify uh, her remains. So she was not taken hostage. She was brutally killed um, last month. And I think the fact that it's taken so many weeks to, to identify her remains really speaks to the, the, br the brutality of the horrific attack. Okay, thank you. The CBC's Briar Stewart in Jerusalem tonight. Thanks for your time. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau addressed the mounting civilian casualties in Gaza just moments ago. Here's what he had to say about that. The human tragedy that is unfolding in Gaza is heart-wrenching, especially the suffering we see in and around the Al-Shifa hospital. I have been clear that the price of justice cannot be the continued suffering of all Palestinian civilians. Even wars have rules. All innocent life is equal in worth, Israeli and Palestinian. I urge the government of Israel to exercise maximum restraint. As the world is watching on TV, on social media, we're hearing the testimonies of doctors, family members, survivors, kids who've lost their parents. The world is witnessing this, the killing of women and children, of babies. This has to stop. Medics and officials inside Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza say they are afraid and unable to leave. Israel denies that the hospital is under siege and says it even offered to send portable incubators to the reported 36 babies inside Al-Shifa who need to evacuate. The U.S. says it would support evacuation of patients at Gaza hospitals through an independent third party. We want hospitals to be protected. Um, we don't want to see any civilians, and certainly not babies in incubators or other vulnerable populations, uh, caught in a crossfire. We want there to be safe evacuation for patients at hospitals so they can get out of harm's way. Um, we would support an independent third party or respected third party to conduct those evacuations. Dr. Richard Brennan is the WHO's Regional Emergency Director for the Eastern Mediterranean. Sir, as I understand it, power has been cut from incubators and other life-saving machines in the intensive care unit at Al-Shifa Hospital. Babies are being relocated from a nursery. What can you tell us about the current state of affairs? How is the healthcare system holding up? Well, it's uh, the overall humanitarian situation. I think we could characterize as catastrophic and in the health system it's about as bad as in any other sector. Um, and it, right now, 
uh, 75% of the 36 hospitals across Gaza are non-functioning. Uh, prior to the conflict, we had about 3,500 beds for patients in hospitals. We only now have about 1,000 beds. And that at a time when health needs are skyrocketing uh, across all of Gaza. Uh, in Shifa Hospital, uh, they're really just hanging on. Um, as you rightly said, uh, we estimate 36 uh, newborns uh, uh, still clinging to life, uh, around uh, 27 patients still in intensive care. Four of them have sadly passed away over the last uh, two or three days uh, because uh, of uh, dysfunction of some of the life support uh, uh, equipment that, that, uh, that would keep them alive. Um, and that's not functioning because of the lack of fuel and electricity and so on. Um, so right across the board, uh, we have uh, soaring health needs, but our ability to meet those needs is, is really plummeting. So Al-Shifa doesn't have electricity, doesn't have water, and it has very poor internet, as you've just said, and it's had poor internet for the last few days. Can you just be specific there? How, how have these outages affected folks? Like, is there associated deaths because of these outages? Yes, I mean... Our information is, uh, we're getting less information now than we were several days ago. Uh, I think we can make clear assumptions that people are dying uh, unnecessarily because of uh, the lack of power and the lack of functioning equipment um, and just the overwhelming need. So, um, you know, we're, uh, the, the trauma patients, uh, I, I, they're competing for time in the operating room. Uh, doctors have to make some very tough decisions in these contexts. Um, when you've got very limited resources and you've got multiple patients or with life-threatening problems, you have to make a decision, a, a very, very difficult decision about, frankly, who will live and who will die. Uh, and we hear this continuously from, from doctors and nurses in Gaza, and we're hearing it increasingly frequently. For example, if you've got one or two operating rooms and you've got four or five patients needing surgery at a given time, uh, who do you operate on? And who do you delay? If you've only got one ventilator functioning and you have two or three patients requiring it, who do you put on the ventilator and who do you uh, 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 not support? So these are very real challenges that, that health professionals in Gaza are facing far, far too often. There have also been some reports that hundreds of people are trapped inside the hospital right now. And the BBC is also unfortunately reporting that there are dead bodies piling up inside as well. What do you know about that? Yeah, so we understand now there's probably around 600 patients uh, remaining, uh, around 100 staff and upwards of uh, 1,500 people uh, taking shelter there, displaced people. Um, we've all seen the, the scenes on the television, uh, reports from various news sources about multiple deaths uh, because of the security situation. Uh, the, the hospital staff are not allowed, to, not able to take the bodies outside the perimeter of the hospital. So now they are starting to bury in uh, reportedly mass graves uh, on the hospital grounds. Uh, and we're also hearing that, uh, frankly, the stench of decaying uh, flesh is, is permeating throughout the hospital, which makes the overall situation just incredibly uh, difficult uh, for those remaining inside. And you can imagine just the pressure of, of the doctors on the doctors and nurses, uh, the overwhelming need, 
the reduced resources, not only the electricity and the water and the oxygen that you've mentioned, but of course, uh, medicine and other supplies. Uh, they're really just hanging on by a thread right now uh, and doing a remarkable job, I have to say. I mean, the, the, these doctors and nurses, these health professionals, they're heroic and, and they desi- deserve our respect and our deepest admiration. Israel alleges that Hamas is using hospitals, including and especially, I guess, Shifa, to conceal a vast command complex underground. They say the sick and the injured are being used as human shields. What do you say to those claims? Well, all all I can tell you is what uh, my colleagues and and frankly, I've seen over the years. Um, I've visited Shifa Hospital and we have staff on the ground. Um, What I can tell you is that Shifa Hospital continues to provide its medical and life-saving function. Um, uh, You know, None of my colleagues have seen evidence of the militarization of uh, of the facility. Uh, if that does occur, uh, of course, WHO condemns militarization of, of any health facility. Uh, we haven't observed uh, uh, any uh, any of that uh, during the visits of our staff, but we can confirm that it continues to provide its uh, its vital medical and, and life saving function. Have you ever seen anything like this, the militarization of hospitals? Like, this seems to be quite extraordinary in terms of the hospitals being at the center of a conflict. Well, I, I, you know, what, what the allegations are in the instance of, of Shifa uh, are that uh, the militarization is underground. So, um, you know, we've heard from multiple witnesses. They haven't seen any evidence of militarization within the hospital buildings. Um, I, have, I personally have, have seen in hospitals across uh, many conflict zones uh, and humanitarian crises, I have seen hospitals taken over by military personnel. That is not what people are observing or reporting in the instance of Gaza. The allegations are that uh, the, the military presence is in bunkers below the ground, not controlling the hospital above the ground so much, but uh, as I understand it. Um, so it's a different context of militarization that we have seen in, in other contexts. What can the WHO do? You know, the situation seems incredibly dire, as you've been describing. It's not just Shifa. There are other hospitals that are essentially non-functional. What's the next step? It isn't likely that there will be an abrupt end to this conflict. No. Well, I mean, I, I mean, there's things that we're doing operationally, and there are things that we, we do on the advocacy side. And, of course, our biggest request is that there be an immediate ceasefire. Uh, That's absolutely vital. Uh, We are also appealing for unhindered uh, humanitarian access to those in need. Um, We're also calling, of course, for the unconditional release uh, of all the hostages and and appropriate medical care for them while they are in captivity. Uh, And of course, we're we're asking for cessation of attacks on on, on healthcare and civilian infrastructure. There's been over 130 attacks on on healthcare in Gaza. So that's on the advocacy side. On the operational side, uh, uh, we're increasingly constrained in what we can do. Uh, Of course, getting supplies and equipment to the the hospitals uh, is, is a top, top priority. We've made four major distribution so far to uh, seven priority hospitals across Gaza, including two in the north, including Shifa. Uh, frankly, we've, we've delivered there twice since the start of the conflict. Um, one of the other big concerns we have is uh, preventing disease outbreaks. With 1.6 million people acutely displaced, 
800,000 of them essentially crammed into overcrowded schools um, and other collective centres where the conditions are, are woeful with lack of access to clean water, poor sanitation, overflowing toilets. We're putting in mechanisms as best we can uh, under very difficult circumstances to try and detect uh, disease trends and potential disease outbreaks and put in some public health measures to prevent outbreaks. But it's very, very difficult. We're seeing increased cases of diarrhea and respiratory infections and terrible skin infections like um, uh, scabies and so on. Of course, what we want to do is support the existing health system as much as we can. We're trying to bring in more capacity. As I mentioned, we've gone from 3,500 beds to 1,000 beds uh, across just at the time where uh, when health needs are absolutely skyrocketing. Uh, but it's all very challenging because we don't have fuel uh, and we have very constrained access to those in the... Mm. Okay, let's leave it there. Thank you, Dr. Richard Brennan, the WHO's Regional Emergency Director for the Eastern Mediterranean. appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Thanks a lot. The federal government has announced its largest deal yet through the Housing Accelerator Fund. Calgary is getting $228 million in, from Ottawa to help build nearly 7,000 new homes over the next three years. Jyoti Gondek is the mayor of Calgary. Welcome to the program, Mayor. Hey, thanks for having me on. So you're getting a big check from Ottawa, about $228 million. But of course, the federal cash comes with some strings attached. What will Calgary have to do to get its hands on all that money? You know, it's important to make sure that you have conditions on any funding that's being provided. And the way the Housing Accelerator Fund works is uh, the municipality submits an application, which we did back in June, outlining the types of things that we believe we can deliver on. And then there's a negotiation period, which we've just gone through. And uh, a terms of reference has been decided upon. And it's an agreement that we will deliver housing in a variety of manners. And that will be made public in short order. But essentially, we have to deliver on those targets and we have to achieve those milestones to achieve the funding. In the first year, we'll get 25% of the total. We'll continue to get an additional 25% each year that we meet the milestones. So it's a, it's a pretty good way to make sure that there's checks and balances in place. So is it more density? Is that what Ottawa is demanding? I mean, I know when they cut a deal in Ontario with one of the municipalities here, they demanded that they go from you know one home on a plot of land to potentially up to four. Is that something that Calgary is going to have to go along with as well? You know, it's not something that they asked us to do in that manner. They were very happy that that's something we were debating when we were holding the public hearings on our housing strategy. They were very pleased that our housing strategy uh, has a nod towards changing our base zoning to allow for four uh, homes on a parcel instead of just one, which is what we have right now. But it wasn't a demand in any way. Rather, we had put forward an application that talks about uh, strengthening the availability of housing downtown through conversion and uh, building programs. It talks about streamlining our approvals processes, and it talks a lot about incentives for secondary suites and benefits for uh, nonprofit housing providers. So a lot of different ways that we can achieve those results. Alberta Premier Daniel Smith says the accelerator fund just isn't fair. She says because Quebec cut a side deal with Ottawa, and that means every city and town potentially in that province can get some money, whereas the rest of the country has to go cap in hand to Ottawa to ask for money to agree to some of their terms. Does she have a point? Is there some unfairness in how the program is currently structured? 
I would say that the way the program is structured was um, pretty well understood by municipalities. Uh, certainly as big city mayors, we were all very clear on what was expected when you submit your application. We had several meetings with uh, the different ministers over time, and we all knew what was required when you submit a housing accelerator fund application. So I would say there weren't really any surprises. Um, and then after those uh, applications go through, there's obviously a negotiation process. I, I don't know um, how it would be deemed as unfair when a program has been put into place and then it is rolled out the way it was intended to be. I'm just very happy that Calgary was successful in our bid. What's your message to the Premier, though? Because she says she's considering provincial legislation to block bilateral deals like the one you've just signed with uh, the Housing Minister, Sean Fraser. She wants all the cash to go through the province first. What do you say to her? I would say to Premier that um, it's time we understand that all three orders of government have an absolute mandate to work together. The situation is very dire. In Calgary, we've got you know, 115 people arriving in the city every day if we break down the numbers to that kind of a statistic, and we don't have time to be, you know, wondering which order of government should have say over how the funding rolls out. I would also say that she has been a premier who has implemented a ministry of red tape reduction. This is an excellent way to reduce that red tape. It is an excellent way for her government not to have to expend dollars on administration of the funds that we can receive directly. And we are a very good partner. We're incredibly transparent about what we're trying to accomplish. And, you know, I'd be happy to have regular update meetings with premier or anyone in her government to talk about about what we're doing with these funds. And I just, um, you know, I hope three orders of government can work well together. And do you think people really care whether the money comes from the feds or the province? Is that really something that uh, people are concerned about sitting up at night saying, I wonder where that cash was coming from? You know, I would say for anyone that's in a position of being unhoused right now or any family that's wondering how they're going to make the rent, it doesn't matter to them. All they want to know is that the city that they live in is taking care of them. And, you know, we are the type of government that does not um, try to take all the credit. We are happy to talk about the times the provincial government has helped us out. We're happy to talk about the times that the federal government has done so. We are also always uh, very aware of when the private sector has stepped up. So, you know, the credit goes to all parties who play a role in resolving this housing crisis. And I think we should all understand that that's what's important to Calgarians right now. Let's talk about Calgarians because those who are looking to buy their first detached home in 2023 they need an annual household income of $156,000. That's based on data from your city. Do you think that there's a risk that the dream of home ownership is just going to slip away for a generation of young people? Not too many folks have a household income that size. Yeah, you know, I think one of the one of the biggest predicaments that we find ourselves in now is this um, valorization or the importance that's put onto home ownership. And I think over time, as the national housing strategy started leaning towards home ownership, and we have an organization that's called the Canada Mortgage and Housing Company, we got away from talking about housing writ large. And so we stopped talking about the importance of rental. We stopped talking about the importance of co importance of co-op situations. So I think the extreme attention that was put on ownership has put us in this place. And I would really like to talk about the other options that are available and how orders of government can work together to make sure that people have different options, including ownership. Um, but you know what? That doesn't have to be the only way forward. And we need to be talking about why home ownership has mattered so much is because people were trying to build up an asset base. So let's talk about how they can do that without having to fall into the pit of mortgages they can't afford. You mentioned the CMHC. They estimate we need to build three and a half million more 
units by 2030 to actually get to some level of affordability in this country. Last year, the housing starts were about 260,000 units. What more can we do to turbocharge construction to really meet what's seemingly insatiable demand right now? I would say one of the things that we have found to be incredibly successful is our downtown revitalization strategy. Within that program, we offered an incentive to uh, companies that were coming forward with the desire to convert existing office buildings into residential. And the really beautiful part of this program is we had several projects come forward that have included a component of affordable housing. We've got one on the go right now that will be ready for occupation um, in Q1 of next year where 40% of the units are 20% below market. So when you provide incentive programs to the private sector, they really can deliver. And I think we've got to be creative in that regard. Okay, let's leave it there. Jyoti Gondek is the mayor of Calgary. Thanks for your time tonight. Thanks so much. A new poll from Abacus Data shows 72% of Canadians think the three-year carbon tax carve-out for home heating oil should be expanded to cover all home heating fuel. When you look at the breakdowns from that poll, a majority of all main parties want to see future exemptions on all types of home heating fuels like propane and natural gas, with Conservative supporters most in favour at 85% and Liberals, they're also at 62%. That's an interesting number. Conservative leader Pierre Polyev promised yesterday to ramp up pressure on the government to pass another bill that would give farmers a tax break. Common sense Conservatives are launching a full-on campaign to push for liberal senators to allow the passage of C-234 to take the carbon tax off farmers and food. Who's winning the political battle over the carbon tax? It's time to bring in the power panel. Shachi Curl is the president of the Angus Reid Institute. Francois Boivin is a former NDP MP and political commentator. And here with me in studio, Stevie O'Brien is a senior advisor at Macmillan Vantage. And Kate Harrison is vice chair at Summa Strategies. So, Stevie, I'm going to start with you. Interesting numbers this morning from Abacus Data. Uh, they're finding that 62% of liberal voters, at least the respondents to this poll, think that the carbon tax pause should be expanded to include all energy sources. What do you make of some of this, uh, some of this numbers that we're it's, getting? It's not surprising that it's easy to sell a tax cut during an affordability crisis. Um, but what I'd say is the heating oil announcement uh, a couple weeks ago, primarily and most disappointingly, was a, a communications error. And what it's given, it has given the premiers and the opposition a, another sort of tool to, or another you know, stick to hit the government with, this cry of inequity. Uh, and, you know, the, gov- the federal government's being unfair, which in fact isn't actually true. Of the 1.2 million houses that have, uh, that use heating oil, 900 1,000 are west of Nova Scotia. So I really hope the Liberal uh, government pushes back on that narrative of inequity. Of course, though, it's harder when you have to sort of explain the science behind why heating oil and propane are different versus just putting axe the tax on a bumper sticker. Yeah, I think probably because when the Prime Minister made the announcement about the pause, he was just surrounded by Atlantic Canadian MPs, so it sort of signaled from the get-go that maybe this was an announcement that would benefit just that region. But as you rightly point out, There are people across the country who use home heating oil. It's a small percentage in provinces like Ontario and Quebec, but a small percentage of a much larger population, right? And so people will be able to benefit from this. But 
What do you think, Kate, that this, where do you think this goes? Because it does seem like it's really difficult to keep pressing on with a policy that voters perceive to be unfair. Whether it is unfair or not, there is obviously a lot of support in this poll and others for there to be an expansion of the carbon tax, an expansion of the pause that was put in place. Do you think that that's something we'll see from this government? Do you think they're willing to walk back kind of a signature policy that they've been championing for the last eight years? I I don't. And to your point, it's because it's a signature policy that we probably won't see that window expand. Uh, I think if you were to ask Abacus Data, you know, open-ended to Canadians, what do they uh, view as this government's major hallmark policies? I think one would be legalizing uh, marijuana, and I think close behind it would be the climate change uh, agenda and progress on environmental issues, an issue which uh, the Liberals still own in the minds of of voters. So uh, to expand this Uh, carbon tax carve-out JP would really undermine that foundation that the Liberals have built on this issue. Uh, And, you know, to Stevie's point on execution, it's failed in a couple of different ways. Certainly, they've not been able to win the political constituency they were trying to in terms of uh, shoring up more support in Atlantic Canada. I think they've hurt themselves quite a bit with, I'll say, terracotta liberals, those that might go back and forth between the orange team and the red team. Uh, And all they've done is really hand Pierre Polyev another opportunity um, to to lean on the critique of this government that they're sowing regional divisions with adoptions of policies like this. Francoise, I mean, 62% of Liberals want to see an expansion of the carbon tax pause. They want to see it applied to all energy sources. They don't just want it on home heating oil. And then we also have, I want to read you something from Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe, who has a new statement out today. He's really putting pressure on the Senate <laughs> to pass another legislation, as he says, it is unacceptable that the Senate would stand in the way of providing Canadians with a break on grocery costs by blocking this carbon tax exemption, which has been approved by the House of Commons. He's talking about some delay tactics that were used by some Trudeau-appointed senators in the upper house last week, trying to punt debate on this bill, uh, putting it off to another date, probably when they return next week. But what do you make of this concerted effort? Clearly, Pierre Polyev and his ally, in many respects, the Saskatchewan Premier, are really (laughs) trying to ramp up the pressure on the government and trying to poke holes, try to make the climate policy of this government into Swiss cheese, basically. Well, exactly. And maybe because the message from the conservative side is easier to understand for the population than the one that the government is trying to convey. Uh, a lot of people from the, the get-go don't get what the carbon tax is all about, what it does, and then you get a check, and uh, uh, meanwhile our emissions still n- are not going uh, to reach their targets, and, and so on and so forth. And then you have Pierre Poilier who comes up and say, uh, we're all hurting, Everybody is hurting in Canada. It's going to cost a lot of money to heat ourselves uh, this winter. We should cut everything for everybody. And the government, who, like uh, Stevie was saying, uh, did a really bad uh, job of, of communicating what they were trying to do with this. So uh, to add the pressure, and then it's on food, it's on farm. Uh, let's remove that tax, which seems to make sense. I mean, and poll anybody, Shakti will tell us. Ask anybody on the phone, would you like to see that tax go? I'll raise my hand also. I mean, everybody will say, yes, please remove all taxes if we can. (laughs) Now, how we get the service and how we do this and that, that's another story. But it depends what the question is. So uh, there are in a bad situation, especially since the House did adopt C-234. And now it's gamemanship being played in, uh, in, in, in the Senate. So uh, 
they're just joining in the bandwagon. So the, the, the poor liberals are cornered in, in that. And, and with a, a, an environment minister who said, no more or I'm stepping down. So that we'll see if we get we still have the same uh, environmental minister in a few weeks yeah environment minister Stephen Guilbeault was out today saying that Pierre Polyev and the conservatives are being disingenuous about this bill that is before the senate that would exempt uh, more fuels from the carbon tax for farmers alone he says that most fuels that farmers use are already exempt from the carbon tax and that there is a rebate program in place where some farmers can get back some cash um, just like consumers do when we fill up our cars. Uh, although it is quite onerous for some farmers, not everyone w- is able to tap into some of these programs and have their fuel sources covered. $31,000, for example, is a fuel bill for a chicken farmer. I was speaking to one person about that for a single year. It's a, it's a huge expense. Shachi, do you think the government is <laughs> in a bind here? Like, where do they go from here? I mean, they do want to be the climate warrior party, right? And they have been so steadfast about that for eight years. They keep hammering Polyev about saying, where's your policy? You have nothing to offer on climate. We're facing all these natural disasters, and yet you come up with nothing. That's their claim. Do you think that voters right now are willing to pay a little more to maybe deal with climate change, or do you think there's going to be this momentum to try and scrap this policy? Well, it depends on which voters and the extent to which voters understand whether the amount that they're paying in tax is equal to less than or more than the amount that they're getting back in rebate. And, you know, this poll today really does a very good job of explaining the what. Okay, so what people want or what they're saying they want is they'd like to see some tax relief, too. Where's my tax relief? And I talked (laughs) about this in my column uh, on Friday for the Ottawa Citizen, talked about it on the House on Saturday morning when the environment minister was also on saying that he would absolutely not be going anywhere. I'm I'm paraphrasing. I don't think he used exactly those <laughs> words. But the point is, what we need to better understand now is the how. Okay, so what is driving those views? What is it predicated on? And for a party that has liked to pride itself so much on its climate leadership, Stevie talked a little bit about this just a moment ago when she talks about uh, the, the fact that the rollout was per- perhaps not well explained. From Francoise also talks about the communications gap. Here's where the Liberals have really just failed to do the daily homework. You know the old adages about like make your bed every day or brush your teeth every day. Mm-hmm. Like, do, the, do the healthy habits. Here's where the Liberals have not over the eight years that they've had to do this and hammer this into the brains of every household taxpayer out there that for those that are getting rebates here's your money back. Like we critics hate it and journalists hate it when politicians you know, put up those big garish billboards and like to really burnish their creds and tell you when they're giving you a break or giving you a money back or doing something nice for you. I remember those those infrastructure spending dollars after the financial crisis in in the mid to late two uh, thousands. They, they, they you know those those ought decades where the Harper government had all of those billboards. Your tax dollars yes. at work. Where mm-hmm. is like the laminated check and the special glossy insert that comes with that? saying, look at how much you're getting back. Oh, and by the way, aren't you virtuous? You're helping 
uh, combat climate change. You're helping bend back emissions. This government, over the, the better part of a decade, has taken it for granted that broadly, with the exception of some opponents and some absolute haters of this taxation, mm -hmm. that everybody else got it and understood it. And what they are realizing in this moment is in the face of a cost of living crisis, which is felt so much more individually at the household level, people are equating that tax pain with the pain that they are feeling due to higher cost of living. And it's it's never been adequately explained or communicated to them that maybe that's not the case. So we really have to understand what support for this looks like by understanding of who's getting a rebate. And stay tuned for data on that. Stevie, I want to give you the last word on this because I feel like we've been folks have been beating up on the government here, but do you think that there hmm. is a chance that the carbon tax just goes away? Because, you know, we have the home heating oil exemption. There is increasing pressure from the premiers to do it nationwide on all he uh, heating oil sources. We now have the Senate bill. Is there a chance they just abandon the carbon tax and maybe just bolster other carbon tax, other carbon policies, other climate initiatives, make maybe just dismantle that and put more money into a more ambitious heat pump program, for example, make other activities that would help us. The carbon tax isn't going anywhere. It is a signature piece of policy. We've discussed that already this evening. Um, I think the next election is probably going to be a climate change focused election. What we're going to see, and maybe even as early as next week, are additional measures that do focus on affordability, that focus on housing, that focus on those top voter issues that do not necessarily or do not touch carbon uh, pricing at all. Speaking of housing, we'll go to our next topic. The federal <laughs> government announced more deals to fund housing construction in Toronto and Calgary today, but absent from those announcements, provincial governments. The finance minister says she'd be happy to have premiers kick in their own funding. Have a look. I am really pleased to see the premiers paying attention to municipalities I would love to see them providing even more support uh, to the municipalities over whom they are proudly asserting their jurisdiction. What are the political optics around these housing announcements? The Power Panel is still with me to discuss this. So, Kate, um, some criticism from the Premiers last week about the Housing Accelerator Fund saying that they don't like it when Ottawa goes directly to the cities mm -hmm. and cuts deals. They don't get to be there when they hand out the cash and the provinces doesn't get to take any credit for that. Um, or assert any control. Or assert any control. And that's the question to you. Do you think that there is a problem with how this is all structured? And do you think that the provinces need to step up? I mean, we spoke to the Calgary mayor earlier in the program, and she said, look, I'm not going to turn, turn down cash from Ottawa. If they're coming with $228 million, I don't care who it comes from, mm -hmm. as long as it helps with this crisis. Do you think that they're, the conservative premiers have misfired here? Like, maybe they're, they're just not getting it, that it's a crisis, and it doesn't really matter where the cash comes from. Yeah, no, I, I think they certainly get it, and we're seeing that play out in Ontario. Doug Ford's entire political legacy is probably going to be determined on the housing file, which is why we're seeing uh, him switch gears on, on things like Greenbelt and, and other mm. things. So I think they certainly get it. I do think it is, of course, about control and parameters and playing a bit of a role in, in who gets what. I also think the provinces are probably a little bit more sensitive to municipal concerns on things like zoning. They're probably hearing about that much more often than necessarily the federal government. I think at the end of the day, though, what we're seeing is a huge injection of cash from the federal government for something that is going to be realized medium to long term. 
I, I think, you know, the Liberals are right to focus on housing. I think the way they're going about it is going to benefit the next government and maybe the one after that, not them today. Uh, and when it comes to kind of the jurisdictional question, we see a lot of carrot in terms of the federal government's approach. I don't th think we're seeing any stick. We don't see the uh, feds really asking municipalities to remove red tape uh, and regulation. Uh, we haven't seen any kind of parallel commitment like what uh, Pierre Polyev has talked about in terms of actually holding cash back if certain housing targets aren't met. Uh, so this is a really complex problem. Uh, 70,000 units is great. It's not even a drop in the bucket to the 5.3 million we need to sustain the growth the country is having. Uh, but it's going to cost $450,000 per unit uh, based on the calculation today, which is a lot of dough for very limited short-term political gain for this government. Yeah, so the Freeland announcement in Toronto today, as you were just saying there, Kate, $1.2 billion in loans. They are repayable low-interest loans to folks that are building these units. And they're going to get 2,644 rental homes across seven projects. So it's a lot of money for not that many units, but I guess that's just the cost of doing business now in Canada. Francoise, what do you make of this? I mean, the CMHC, the Whoa. Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation, says they need to build 3.5 million units by 2030. We only build about 260,000 a year. So we really have to turbocharge the amount of homes that we're building. It's a huge political problem, especially among millennials. Young people really care about this. The largest voter block. The government's trying to be attentive to it. How do you see this housing file play out? Well, I see it as a big, right now, the same way we said in the first block that uh, the Liberals were, were really bad at communicating what they were trying to do with their carbon tax. Now, all we'll see is them going to announce in different, in as many municipalities that will welcome them uh, with open arms and with a check. And that makes for, for, for good TV because I saw Minister Fraser today. I saw Christian Freeland today. And, and that's just a few examples. Is it good for the country? Is it good for the housing crisis? I do not think so. The, the, the ex-law student in me uh, went back to my books because I'm like, my God, when I was a politician and I was in the House of Commons, I would have dreamed to go do some announcement directly with my municipality of Gatineau. But we were forbidden because municipalities, according to my, book, my law books, uh, falls under provincial total exclusive jurisdiction. So it's going to be a battle. But the feds are, are betting that it looks bad to go battle jurisdiction when people need a home, need a, a roof on top of their head. But this is a dangerous, dangerous play. Just to be able to go in certain writings that you want to keep uh, from here to the election, I think it's a dangerous game. And they might see province answering, uh, doing what Quebec has been doing all along because we do not have those problems in Quebec because we said, no, you want to come and spend in our province? Well, you make some deals with the province. And for those who say, well, it takes time to, for the federal to negotiate with the provinces. Mm. Just imagine, Ontario has 444 municipalities. Good luck dealing with 400 and maybe, what, 40 left uh, to negotiate with. And in, in other provinces, it's, it's even more than that. So it's like... Seriously, I think it's just for optic, and I find it sad that we play optic political game with a subject that is 
so serious as as uh, the housing crisis in, in Canada. I was at the cabinet retreat in Charlottetown PEI just before this uh, session of parliament returned and the government was there meeting trying to discuss what the housing agenda would be for the fall, cognizant of the fact that it was a big issue among young people and in the polls. And we were quite critical of them at the time that they didn't have anything to announce there was no real plan. There was nothing mm-hmm. like enunciated from that cabinet retreat that was supposed to be about housing. We we're like, okay, where's the beef? But at least now, I guess we're seeing the beef, right? We are seeing the housing accelerator fund roll out. The, Sean Frazier is racking up the aeroplan points, flying across the country, announcing new deals every, seemingly every day with different municipalities, and he's getting units built. I mean, that's what people were clamoring for, right? People want to see homes built and he is having some success. Shachi, do you think that that is going to help them in the standings with millennials and young voters who really, I don't know what the latest numbers are, but I know historically over the last few months, this has been at the top of the list of priorities for them. It continues to be a top priority. It continues to be a top priority for two reasons. One, because mortgage rates are as high as, high as they are, and uh, and so the the dream of owning a home becomes uh, that much more distant. And also the rental factor and how rents really that the rental equation of this has skyrocketed. A couple of points. First of all, I started to to smile when Francoise was talking because you know it's almost as though we're all realizing it's like that scene in Casablanca where where the the police inspector. Uh, Louis, who's played by Claude Rains, comes in, raids the casinos. I'm shocked, shocked to discover gambling. Are we shocked yep. to discover that that now some of these announcements are rolling out in what are very obviously swing ridings and in cities and urban areas that are in play? Of course that's happening. What else do we expect is going to happen at this stage? But you may, you said something a moment ago, JP, about getting units built. What we're hearing and what we're seeing from the, the federal government, from this level of, of politician at this federal level, are announcements aimed at spending some money, aimed at eventually getting some units built. And there are so many steps in between. And I say this to you as somebody living in Metro Vancouver, speaking to you from Vancouver, where people have been clamoring for more supply and greater affordability and relief for the better part of a decade. We've been the canary in the coal mine. And guess what? It remains a crisis. So dropping in from riding to riding and and swing region to swing region and battleground to battle battleground with some checks. Yes, it helps the optics and the visibility, and I'm not going to dunk on the communications of that. But frankly, housing has not been a winning file for this government, in part because we've heard the prime minister say in the past, it's not primarily a federal responsibility. And now realizing and once again playing defense because you've got an opposition leader who is playing on the fact that people are not necessarily experts uh, in in jurisdictional law saying, well, (laughs) what are you guys doing on this front? So it's defensive. It's also, as, as Kate mentioned, the payoff comes years from now. But in the meantime, it's like, here's a chocolate, release some endorphins. Please just stop beating us up on so many different files. Stevie, I think that Shachi makes a good point there that the prime minister got in trouble for saying, well, it's primarily a provincial responsibility. You know, like he, and he wasn't necessarily saying that. He said that they would step up, they would be there, they would help, but he did kind of make that definitive statement that it maybe is more of a provincial problem. Now they're just throwing that out the window, right? Now they're like, let's just cut deals with the cities directly. I want to be there. I want Sean Frazier to be in Calgary with that big check and we're going to announce all these units. Like they've just gone the opposite direction, right? Realizing that when it comes to politics, you might as well just 
do it, right? You might as well just sign these deals. Forget about the constitutional considerations. Polyev's oh, up 20 geez. points among millennials. You know, we got to do something. Is that, am I, is that a fair read of how, how this is playing I, out? I, I don't think it's pure politics. I think a crisis is a crisis, and, and it's a top issue. And they heard over the summer, and they've been hearing from caucus, and they've been hearing uh, from Canadians that this is where they want their government to focus. They've even been hearing from the opposition leader that this is where they want the government to focus. Mm-hmm. So that is where they are um, putting their focus. And as you said, Sean uh, Frazier has been on fire since the shuffle. It feels like there's an announcement every week. Um, and we, like I said earlier, the Fez is next week. And I think we largely anticipate seeing more housing related announcements coming out of that. My only concern is that the, we may be losing the forest for the trees here a little bit. And there's a danger of oversaturating the voters with these housing announcements to the point where they start tuning them out. And there aren't those economic action plan signs uh, up to, uh, t- to remind them. Kate, really quick final word to you. Where do you think this goes? Do you think the feds will have a bunch of cash to splash around on housing? Yeah, I, I think that's really the only place they seem to be putting cash cash lately. Um, certainly would expect that to be the, the core focus. But again, it's not you can't really buy your way out of the housing crisis. Um, it's tied to so many things. It's tied to immigration, which, you know, finally just now the mm-hmm. government is deciding they need to link, um, you know, infrastructure support to and, and that includes housing. Um, and it's tied to labor shortages. So uh, more money for the housing accelerator fund or the rental uh, construction financing initiative, all well and good, not going to fix the housing crisis tomorrow. And it doesn't get at some of those more systemic challenges to do with population growth, to do with labor market shortages. That really needs to be addressed in order to have any kind of a short-term impact. And it'll be hard for builders to build in this interest rate environment, no matter what the government does. Mm -hmm. So that is a real concern. Okay, thank you to the Power Panel, Stevie O'Brien, Kate Harrison, Francois Boivin, and Shachi Curl. You guys are great. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow our pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern. I'm JP Tasker. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.